HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Domain. Domain offers discreet and secure storage, transportation, trading, and advisory services to passionate fine wine collectors worldwide. For more information, visit DomainStorage.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. I am excited for the show today. Uh, we have a true legend, a true master, as a matter of fact, <laughs> in the studio with us today. We have Larry Stone, Master Sommelier, uh, over 35 years in the wine industry. Um, he's here to talk to us about his new project in Oregon called Lingua Franca. Um, if I were to just... If I were to tell you about all the things Larry's done, all the accolades he's won, uh, best uh, sommelier of French wines in Paris, uh, I, I, I could I could use the rest of the show to to tell you uh, about uh, about all the great things that he has done in his career. Uh, but today we are going to focus on lingua franca. Uh, one thing I will say to give you a, a sort of idea as the to the kind of um, career that Larry Larry has had and still has has have has um Raj Parr who's a, a friend of the show a friend of mine uh arguably you know one of the greatest Malays in the world looks at Larry as as his true mentor uh in in the wine world uh and I think that that gives uh, some insight so Larry welcome to in the drink uh, it's great to have you here it's such an honor thank you Joe it's really a pleasure to be here um uh so about 10 years ago, you really left the restaurant world, is that right? And, and focused on uh, really on making wine. Tell yeah. us about that, that transition. Well, I was working, you know, I helped establish Rubicon Restaurant with Drew Porn, and uh, one of the investors was Francis Ford Coppola. So he kept relying on me for advice at that time, and I transitioned into being the gérant or the general manager of the winery of Rubicon Estate at that time, and now it's Inglenook. He was, he was able to restore the original name. 
And but I, you know, I had started making wine as a kid, just playing around with it. And I had studied chemistry, so I was always interested in the winemaking aspect. And when we opened Rubicon, one of the first things I did was get fruit contracts and make a little wine with Daniel Jonas. We had a label called Du Chapeau, and uh, and uh, that that ended a little bit but afterwards. And I transitioned that into a little label called Sarita. I named it after my daughter Siri, and. Uh, and that sold pretty well. I mean, uh, because I was living in San Francisco mm-hmm. and Napa Valley was close. I thought the supreme fruit from Northern California is Cabernet from Napa Valley, and I would like to try my hand at that. So I made Cabernet Merlot and Cabernet Franc for a while, and then when I sold that, I I was I had uh, I tried to figure out what to do with the money. I wanted to buy a vineyard. Vineyards are very expensive in California, and I, I'm from Washington State, so I looked for a place to do that. So transition, it was always parallel. It was a kind of a parallel thing to my restaurant career, and it was always in the back of my mind to do it, to return to hands-on winemaking, uh, which was my love of wine began with cooking and food for my mother, and my father and mother liked wine. Uh, not They weren't wealthy, so we drank simple things from the Loire Valley for, uh, and a lot of crisp white wines from the Loire Valley, we drank a lot of German Riesling from, I loved the Moselle, especially when I was really, really young. I'm talking about I started tasting wine when I was seven. And so it was a unique, my, my father had worked at the Pike Place Market in Seattle. Mm-hmm. So Seattle. food, wine, chemistry, I, I, I liked science. I wanted to know how wine and food were put together. And I studied the, the chemistry and that evolved into an interest in chemistry and physics. So and I love this idea of you as a, a teenager trying to make your own wine, yeah. not with grapes even, right? I, yeah, I didn't have grapes because we were too poor to go and get a grape contract. And but I thought, well, Riesling tastes like apples, so and I like crisp Riesling from the Mosul. So I thought, well, I have to figure out what the chemistry is. You know, why does it taste that way? And uh, you know, I looked at the acids and and the balance of it, and I I bought apple juice and then I acidified it with. Uh, I had citric and and uh, and some malic and well malic was is already in the wine and and a little bit of tartaric acid mm-hmm. and I I studied the I had a hydrometer, hydrometer which just really measures the specific gravity it's a very crude uh, tool to measure the specific gravity and I adjusted the must to be a specific gravity of a wine that would be about ten percent alcohol or eight percent alcohol of dry you know between ten and eight and then. Uh, I fermented it, and it came out tasting like Riesling. It was Get pretty amazing. It did. It was actually, I fooled a whole group of uh, professors and graduate students. Uh, about 10 years later, there was a couple of bottles left at a party, and they tasted it, and they said, I said, it was wine tasting. What is this? And they said it was Mosul Riesling. They said Riesling. They thought maybe Mosul is very crisp. And uh, I was very, I was, like, psyched, you know. And, uh, and then I said, I made it here from apple juice, and they looked at me like, that's you know they were incredulous, but none of them ever guessed it was even Washington. I was doing this in Seattle, and I was in graduate mm-hmm. school, and no one even guessed Washington. And re- then they finally said, "Well, it's Washington, probably." And then, and I said, "No." Well, I said, "Yes, actually, it's Washington apples." <laughs> but anyway, that was I, I loved that. I loved the idea of how you know how do things taste? How do they get put together? Why and why does food and wine go together? And, and it was all part of a continuum. It was not to be a career. It was meant to be just a great deal of fun. And then uh, when I was writing my doctoral dissertation, was I actually got actively involved as a sommelier for the first time. Yeah. I mean, was it that application of chemistry and that kind of practical application of chemistry that got you most interested in wine? Well, it was well, just, actually, no, the taste. Too, it yeah. was all about the taste. You know, when I was a kid, I, 
my, my my father worked at the Pike Place Market, so I was the market. I was looking at fruits and vegetables and fish. And my mother came from a farming family in Romania. She was a great cook, and she she you know, and Romania has a good relationship with France. So I learned all these French sauces and pot au chou and everything. You know, cooking, baking, with uh, had French elements and also Austrian elements where my father's from. So I learned Austrian cuisine very early, and I just loved doing it. I loved you know, I thought it was great. So it wasn't. Uh, that was what interested me in chemistry, and also because my mother would t- analyze the sauces, and she'd say it's too salty or too acid, or and she would fix it, and you'd go like, well, how do you, you know, what, do you, how do you do that? And she said, well, you know, they balance each other out, and and then so when I was also just curious about everything, and I loved I loved the idea that things were put together with chemicals and and molecules and atoms, and so I loved physics and and. Uh, and chemistry, and I pursued that. I thought that'd be my career, and that I'd be a biochemist. Mm-hmm. And I did start in that career path for like one year of my of my uh, college uh, education, and I did very well in it. But then I wound up doing research very early. I was an honor student, and and when I realized I'd be in a lab the rest of my life, I thought that was a little confining and not. And and then I reflected, and I realized my love of chemistry and science is based also in my love of people and in the world. Mm-hmm. And I I thought, well, I think I'll pursue a until I can figure out how I can put this all together, I'll pursue uh, an interest in poetry and music and and uh, and history. Yeah, and I, I read a story um, in an interview that you gave for Punch, where you you spoke about the a, a girlfriend at the time giving you uh, the World Atlas of Wine, a seven hundred page book, and you memorizing the entire thing. Well, I, it was actually Alexis Lachine's Encyclopedia of Wine because the World oh, Atlas the wasn't available. Avail- was, it was just coming out, but World uh, Alexis Lachine's book was already out. And uh, and so I memorized that, and I was that was the book of the Bible, and I really pretty much memorized it. But uh, good study habits translate into many areas if you if you're able to sit down and concentrate, and uh, and it helped me, of course, when I had my first job interview because I knew everything, and and that was the reference book. The guy interviewing me for the uh, sommelier position opened up uh, to grill me with, and. Uh, I was able to answer all his questions. And he asked some pretty obscure questions. Here. Well, the, the, the kicker was, uh, you know, the final thing that convinced him I knew more about wine than anyone else, at least that was sort of his words, was uh, that he asked me the, a question that he looked for one that was so obscure no one could answer. And he said, what is Gumpoldskirchen? And I go, ah, Gumpoldskirchen, it's a town in the Termin region of Austria near baden Wien. It's used in the casinos there. The grapes are Rotgipfler and Zierfondler mainly and... And the guy looks at me, slams the book shut, and said, "Okay, I don't know where you come from, what planet you come from, but uh, you know, I'd hire you if you had restaurant experience." And that was the other thing. As an undergraduate, I worked in a restaurant as a dishwasher, and I didn't put that on my resume. So I had to tell him, you know, I worked for two years as a dishwasher in the student cafeteria, three sinks, and cleaned the place. And he he said, "You're hired." That was it. That was the end of the interview. You're hired. You said, "You know, the hardest working people in the restaurant industry are dishwashers." Dishwashers, Yeah. And there are a lot of successful restaurateurs today who started off as dishwashers because they're not afraid of they're not afraid of work. It's not a glamorous position by any means. Yeah, I mean, if you're down a server for a night or you know a bartender, someone could jump in. But if you're if the, the the dishwashing station is stalled. Yeah, yeah. It, it holds everything up. You can't you can't run the restaurant anymore. No, it's yeah. it's totally dead. And you know, there, as we found out when I was working that job, because my employer, for some reason, always was riding me at the as a dishwasher. And he one day threw all my clean dishes. He said, "I don't like the way they look." 
and he threw them back in the dirty water, so I had to redo them. They were pretty much done, but it stopped the service <laughs> for about 45 minutes. Oh, my God. The cooks were so angry, but it was the owner. You know, they were just angry at him, though. But, so yeah. when you interviewed sommeliers later on in your career, did you give them the same sort of grilling? Was that kind of minutia of knowing really specific, even obscure pieces of knowledge? Was that was that important? Was that a way that they were able to prove to you that they had a true like love and interest in wine? No, I think what really uh, the most important thing in being a sommelier is your your love of helping people and serving them and their needs, not telling them what you know. And unless they ask you questions specifically, and that can actually get in the way sometimes. And they want to know everything at the table. It's like it's not a lecture session. You have other tables to take care of. But you have to know what's appropriate for that person, so you have to listen. I think the most important thing that I looked for and that made my career successful is that I listened to people and asked, and found out what they like. So yesterday, a good example, as a cab driver, so, uh, I had a box of wine I was carrying around, and he said, oh, uh, do you like wine? I said, well, I make wine. And he goes, oh, that sounds like an interesting thing. I, I'm kind of interested in wine now, too, uh, but I don't really know that much. What do you recommend? And I said, well, how do you drink your coffee? And he goes, I put three cubes of sugar in it. So I'm not going to recommend a uh, Sancerre from... Uh, from you know, or or a Puy Fumé or some or a Chablis. I, mean, I said, well, you should try starting with some German Rieslings mm-hmm. and try try Spätlese at first. And if you want, if you think you can go a little drier, try a Cabinet. And I wrote them down for the names down for him and gave him, put them on my card and gave it to him. And I said, if you have any, you know, have any trouble, just give me a call. I'll, I'll tell you know, figure out where you're going and and uh, I'll, I'll I'll call someone and help and expect you. You know, so. Wow. That's, that, was, that was one lucky cab driver, yeah. <laughs> Larry Stone, choosing wines for him. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, you, you listen. You have to listen to what people like. Not every palate. I think it takes yeah. a long time, or it takes a lot of. It takes a little bit of distancing from what you love, to say, that person probably won't love it. You mm-hmm. know, I grew up with acid wines. Those were the wines my parents drank. They drank, you know, Vouvray and Sancerre and German Rieslings from the Mosel. And, uh, and and Chablis, things like that, that were not really very round and friendly. Uh, not I love those, but I knew when I started my career and people were drinking, you know, th- things like, uh, you know, Heights, uh, they were the, uh, the Z-Lot, Chardonnays were like the Zenith of California Chardonnay. They were, they were beautiful, but they were a little oaky, a little round, you know, a little soft. And, uh, and then people got into even heavier oaked wines, I wasn't going to recommend to a person like that a Chablis you know, mm-hmm. because it would be it would be on one it would be beyond their horizon of expectation, so to speak, of what a wine should be for them, and um, it, their palate just isn't attuned to that. So you have to ask, you know, do you like it this way, that way, and that's the most important thing. More than any knowledge, you should have the knowledge of listening and understanding to interpret what they're saying to you into what kind of wine they would probably. Enjoy and and then maybe upping the game, you know, a little bit, giving them a wine that's a little much better than they've ever had in that style, but it's still in a style that they can relate to. It's a, maybe a bridge to something a little drier, something a little more challenging to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, and on that note, actually, we're going to do a little bridge to a commercial break, and right. uh, we'll be we'll be right back with Larry Stone, Master Sommelier of Lingua Franca wines, right after this. Domain offers discreet and secure storage, transportation, trading, and advisory services to passionate fine wine collectors worldwide. Since 2003, they've focused on making collecting easier and more enjoyable. 
With over 1.8 million bottles in storage across five facilities, Domain is the largest network of wine storage warehouses in the country. Warehouses are located in Chicago, St. Louis, Metro New York, Napa, and Washington, D.C., with refrigerated shipment hubs in dozens of cities. Their service also extends to the home collector. In the last decade, the team has organized and inventoried more than 1.7 million bottles in home sellers across the globe. Additionally, Domain offers auction services to clients with small and large parcels alike, negotiates on their behalf for the best possible price, and manages the entire liquidation process. Go to DomainStorage.com to complete an online questionnaire, and someone will get back to you within one business day. All right, we're back with Larry Stone, uh, Master Sommelier, veteran uh, of the wine industry, um, has been wine director, general manager of some of the greatest restaurants in America, and has been involved in multiple wine projects, including Sarita, uh, Evening Land Vineyards, and now his very own Lingua Franca. Um, Larry, in the first part of the show, you were mentioning about how you really wanted to buy a vineyard, mm-hmm. and uh, you felt like that wasn't possible in California. Uh why didn't you go the route that so many people go where they uh, purchase fruit or, or lease a vineyard? Um, why do you feel it's so important to own one, and, and how did you find this one? You know, it's, it's one of those things that's a mystery. You know, I don't know why as a kid I wanted to make wine. You know, no one, no one else in my family did it. You know, my mother grew up on a farm, and she never said to me, my, my father had a vineyard and made wine. She never told me my grandfather made wine. She talked about the geese and the cows and the wheat and, and how beautiful the town was that she grew up in. Uh, and then it wasn't until after I was in the wine business for like 25 years that she actually said, you know, my, we, had a, we also had a vineyard. My father, you know, made, my father and uncles made some wine. And then a cousin of mine who went back to Romania after the war and lived there, uh, you know, he, he, he emigrated since then. But he, he told me, yeah, I know where the vineyard is. We made wine when we went back after the war. We still had the vineyard. We lost the house and everything, but we had the vineyard. And, uh, and, and I go like, oh, that's amazing. No one ever talks about it. And he says, well, you know, we, you know, we lost most of it, and we just don't, you know, don't really like to talk about the past that much. And... Uh, and the past was very painful for my mother to talk about. Mm-hmm. So it was, I got very little information. So it was amazing. So I don't know why they had a farm. I knew that part. And I think for me to have con- to grow things and have the whole process in, together as one continuous whole, one continuous spectrum of growth from, from the soil to the vine to the grapes to the, the juice to the wine and, and, and have that be part of one process was important to be able to control and have a great site and control what's going on for good or bad. I mean, it, it was like something I just wanted to do uh, from, from a very early age, actually. And then how did you find the, uh, how did you find this specific site? Well, I was working at Evening Land and well, it's, it's a long, it, it has a long history as well, because when I was, uh, you know, in the 19, uh, late 1980s, I was buying wine and uh, for restaurants, and uh, I bought Oregon wine because I was working in Seattle, and we were, I loved to support the Northwest, and Oregon was great with Pinot, so I bought some Adelsheim Pinot regularly and some Irie and, and uh, Ponzi and a lot of great producers that are still around today, many of them, some aren't. Uh, but uh, the one thing I really liked when Adelsheim came out with their first year that they had a, a cuvee, that was called Seven Springs, mm-hmm. and it's in the old Amity Hills. But I thought maybe they bought this new vineyard, and I called uh, 
David Ponzi and I, uh, I'm sorry, not uh, uh, David Adelsheim, and um, he, uh, I said, congratulations, what a great vineyard, and he said, it's mm, not mine, I just buy the fruit, it's like a really young vineyard, but it seems like very promising, and I said, oh, uh, okay, you know, you make great wine, and I just thought this was really, you know, terrific, I hope you continue, and and over the years, when I saw the name Seven Springs come up, I thought it was great. So when I was getting involved in consulting for the evening for the Evening Land project with Mark Tarlov, I told him, I gave him the sites that I thought were good. I thought he'd take one. He took all of them. I said, you know, Santa Rita Hills. I said Sonoma Coast. And I said, but probably the one with the most promise in my mind would be Oregon and the Willamette Valley, specifically Willamette Hills and specifically the hills around Seven Springs. If you can get something near Seven Springs, I'm sure it'll be terrific if it's about the same altitude, the same kind of soil, Jory and Nakaya. And um, so about six months later, he calls me with Dominique Lafon from the vineyard and says, we we have a lease. And I go like, what do you mean you have a lease? On Seven Springs. I go like, you got Seven Springs? How did you do that? And I said, did you... You know, did you check it out first? You know, <laughs> like any problems? Because a lot of vines there can be on own route and phylloxerated and stuff. And he said, no, it's a great deal. We'll get it. And so, But uh, he said it's cheaper than an Upper East Side uh, condominium. <laughs> and I go like, you know, that's not a very good comparison. <laughs> no, that really isn't. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we got it for, for better or worse. And it's all history because it's made great wine, mm-hmm. uh, and probably even better wine than before. But all our neighbors have grow great grapes. Uh, the Bjornstads, the BZ, you know, uh, Argyle is right next door, on right below Seven Springs. And on the other side, the Main Serene has a really great vineyard called Jerusalem Hill. So it's a, it's a neighborhood that's, that this farm that I bought was sought after for 40 years. And I was just very fortunate to be the one... To come up, to pursue it at the right moment when they were ready to to sell it. And is uh, Dominique working with you on Lingua Franca as well? He's in, he's our consulting winemaker. He's also Incredible. he's also vested in the in the company as well. He's a partner in it. He uh, he's he's a big mentor to our winemaker, who's an extremely talented young man, Thomas Saab. He's amazing. He, he's inspirational to work with, and I love what he does. And uh, I hope he likes working with me too. I'm sure he's frustrated by me sometimes, but. Uh, but he uh, he has made some great wines. This first vintage in very difficult circumstances, and the second vintage, which is already in barrel, uh, the sixteen vintage is uh, is going to even be, I think, better in some ways than the fifteen. The fifteen was great enough, but uh, we had our own equipment, we had our own press, mm-hmm. and I think the quality of the juice, at least coming out, has been really exciting for us. You mentioned that Dominique is invested in this. Uh, I know that this must have been an enormous undertaking to raise the money for it. Can you talk about some of your own personal sacrifices that you made to in order to make this project happen? Well, I, I sold, basically, I sold everything I have. I don't have anything left. So if this fails, then uh, I may be knocking on some doors in New York in the future <laughs> asking for a job, <laughs> maybe washing dishes, <laughs> who knows. But um, but in any case, uh, it, it's a it's a project I feel so strongly, and I, I truly believe it's the greatest thing I will have done in my life was to buy this farm and to plant it. Already, whatever happens to our wine company, I feel this is probably the most significant thing I could do is to take this extremely, you know, extremely, uh, you know, gifted piece of land and transform it into a vineyard, and I think I did it in a pretty good way. I think I, I didn't have help from anyone. Dominique wasn't; he was still with Evening Land. I, I basically 
studied the clones that I could get and I wasn't satisfied because of all the disease and all the mix-ups you find in nurseries and I wanted to source it. I worked with Pepinier Guillaume at that time. It's mm -hmm. a preeminent uh, uh, you know, French nursery that has a, had a branch or has a branch, a small branch in Northern California and they were willing to source fruit with me from a specific vineyard site so that I knew where it was coming from, not just what clone it was, but who was growing it. So I knew that's the kind of fruit I wanted. So it was more of a Masal selection rather. It's like a cross between Masal and, and clone because it's a clone specific to specific vineyards. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then the winemaking team and the people who have come together to help me with this. It's, just, it's like the greatest thing in my life. People that work with me as waiters and as uh, bartenders in San Francisco have vested in this. Uh, there's a you know a, a great guy Mason. He's he was at Rubicon and the whole time uh, from probably the first week to the time, date we closed. He uh, his family uh, is you know invested in the winery. I've had friends get involved. Uh, Michael Koo from Japan and mm -hmm. Yoshi Tagamura is going to import us and. We've had Burgundian winemakers come and want to do things with us. Uh, we had the manufacturer of the Tractor Anjambur buy a vineyard site for us so that we could lease it for 32 years. And that's, we have a white wine called Sisters, and now we're going to have that for 32 years. And it's just like one, it's like almost miraculous. I don't even know how to describe it. So it's the greatest thing that's happened to me in my life. It's, I mean, it's a, a full career of uh, doing great things, making great relationships, and now you get to cash in on all of those things. Well, I wouldn't say, I'm not cashing in. I have to work still. I have to earn yeah. <laughs> it. But, but, it's, it's, uh, but it's so gratifying. When I walk that vineyard, just to walk the vineyard is so exhilarating. And to know that there's, there's promise. It's such a, it has such a future. It's, it's still nascent. And it's such a beautiful mm -hmm. young thing, and you go, it's going to grow up and be just exciting. What I mean, what makes it so special? This is volcanic soil? It, you know, it's, it's hard to say why this specific area within the Olamide Hills, I think it has a combination of things. It's the way the wind comes around there. Mm -hmm. There's the Van Duzer Corridor, and we're a little bit off of that. We don't get the direct force of the Van Duzer Corridor, so we get gentle breezes, and we can get fairly, you know, gusty days, but it's usually gentle. And, and so our, our phenological development, you know, the evolution of flavors isn't interrupted by stress from dehydration due to wind. We also, on the, we're on the east side, so we get the morning sun, and we get the morning sun till you know, fairly late in the afternoon. So it's more gentle and less hot than if we were on the west side of the hill and got the afternoon sun, so we, we face the morning. There's the Jory soils are very common throughout the Willamette Valley. They're the state soil. They're, they're incredible soils. But for whatever reason, between Christum, you know, there was, mm -hmm. there's Christum, the Woodland Street was there, Antica Terra's on the, on the hill. You have uh, Bethel Heights, you know, that's a great, you know, great old estate. You've got all this stuff. That, the, the fruit Elton Vineyard, which is one of the older vineyards, is there about a mile and a half from us. We, buy, we bought fruit from them. Uh, Mimi Castile, who's a member of the Castile family that owns Bethel Heights, her, we, we, our best wine uh, is is from her vineyard. She's now our viticulturalist. So okay, we, so we've been we've been sipping on your uh, Mimi's Mind uh, Lingua Franca Pinot Noir that is absolutely delicious. Um, tell this is you said your your top wine of the estate. Well, the first wine you had was Ryan's. This is Mimi's. Okay, uh, it's a little darker. I still have Rhines in my glass. You can see it's a little lighter colored. Yeah. Mimi's is biodynamically farmed. We, we're biodynamically farmed now. 
Mimi is our, has, has come over to us to help us with all steps wow. of our viticulture and as well as our, uh, we're going to have a farm. We have about 35 acres of land that we want just as a farm. We want to have a kind of a natural environment, so we're going to have fruit trees, nut trees, uh, you know, berries, flowers, all sorts of things. Native, and I think a big thing for Mimi is to restore a lot of the native plants that some of them have been pushed aside by the farming over the last 150 years, mm-hmm. so... We, we also have a, a, a pond, a wet wetland pond, and we're going to maintain that for the birds uh, for you know for the whole year. So the, we're going to have a whole cycle of life there. Our rodent control is done by hawks and owls. They're pretty efficient. Incredible. Um, and it, are all of your wines going to be biodynamic? Is that something that you that you truly believe in? Or is it going to be well? I think I think you know Dominique is very well known for his ad, you know advocacy of uh, of of uh, Biodynamic yeah. farming, and we're we're going to be good big advocates also of that, and uh, it's something that Thomas Saab believes in, you know, and he's worked with the biodynamic farming at the Domain de la Romane Conti and the Domain du Jacques where he staged, he and he uh, he he's planted vineyards. He's also does, does viticulture himself, but he has to focus more on the winemaking. I think he likes selling wine too. Mm-hmm. He's really good at that. He went to Paris. We had little samples of this and he went he presented it to Tayavon and the Bristol and he was very, very successful with that. And there's a gentleman in Eugene that uh he talked to and he's bought an enormous amount of wine, a, a retailer, uh, the Broadway wine merchant's called. Well I have to compliment you on, on the this project. I mean the wines are outstanding. I really love them. Um and I have to admit that Oregon's a place that I haven't paid too much attention to in my career as, as someone who's focused more on Italian wine. Yes. Um, and it's just really giving me a reason to, to, to pay a lot more attention to it. Yeah, there's a lot of good producers now. I think there's a whole renaissance there because of uh, a lot of wow. factors. Uh, a lot of French uh, companies, a lot of Burgundy estates are looking at Oregon again. Domain Duran doubled their stake there. They've they've bought a beautiful property also in Yola Medils Rose Rock. They're making very good wines there. Uh, they're gonna, I think, you know, they have a long history. They're gonna do a great job there. It's they're making it. They're making a more refined style or a little lighter style than they did with the Domain Duran wines. Mm-hmm. And and we have Jadot who's started just started and they're gonna grow really well, really strong. Then there are people like Josh Bergstrom who are going to a more refined technique. They're going dialing back the the, the pick days, getting a little lower bricks levels, and trying to make wines. They they reinvigorated by the French model. They go. He went back to France and said Dominique and and Cochin, All those guys have inspired him to mm-hmm. change the style slightly, starting in 2010. Then there's Walter there's Walter Scott, Ken Paolo, and Erica Landon. And they they are amazing people. Uh, uh, Ken worked with me at Evening Land as a salesperson for the Northwest, and uh, he did a great job, but he also had his wine, his barrels of wine that Dominique came and tasted through with him and gave him advice on. So Dominique is a big mentor to him, and he's doing a great job. Eric Asimov has written about him, and, and uh, he's a very small producer and bootstrapped himself. And they, I, they, they're, we're going to do a, the IPNC this year. We're going to do a dinner together with them. So we're very, we're very lucky. It's a great community up in Oregon, as well as uh, being revitalized right now after uh, at this point in its history. Okay, great. It's, it really sounds like it. And uh, uh, again, big compliments on the lingua franca. It's soon to be found at some of the finer restaurants here in New York. 
Yeah, I, I hope so. I think it has already been purchased by a few right now. Excellent. Uh, this has been Larry Stone, uh, Master Sommelier and the founder of Lingua Franca. Just absolutely beautiful wines from uh, from Oregon. Thank you so much for being a guest on In the Drink. Thank you, Joe. It's a real pleasure to be here. I love radio. It was my pleasure as well. Um, and thanks to all of you for listening. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.